Hi, my name's Lee Gatiss and I'm the editor of The Theologian, the internet journal for integrated theology at www.theologian.org.uk. And I'm joined today by R. Kent Hughes from College Church in Wheaton uh, and now working for the Simeon Trust in the United States of America. Kent, it's great to have you here. Welcome. It's great to be here, Lee. Thank We're you. We're here in the, uh, the tower room of St. Andrew's Undershaft in the city of London eating Jaffa cakes. Do you we like are. Jaffa cakes? We are indeed. Well, it's a revelation to me. <laughs> and you are Kent Hughes. Now, does that mean that you're the, the 18th child, that your mum started at A and worked all the way through uh, to R? No, it's just Richard, oh. uh, but the middle name is really my name. So Okay, you prefer yeah. Kent to yeah. Richard. Fair yeah. enough. Um, well, tell us a bit about how you became a Christian first. Um, how did that start for you? Was it a Christian home you were brought up in? Uh, no, it wasn't, uh, but it was quite a marvelous thing because uh, very quickly... Uh, my father was a Marine. It was World War II. His first wife died at childbirth, who was a believer. He married my young mother during the war. I came during the war. He was killed in 46, and my father's first wife's two sisters, godly women, began to look out for us and pray for us. Wow. And uh, so I, if I look back in God's uh, guiding, it's my father's first wife's two sisters who pointed us to Christ. Brilliant. And so what, uh, what, what age did you become a Christian then? Actually, I was, uh, I was just entering my teen years, and uh, I heard the gospel clearly. Didn't believe it could really happen to me. <laughs> Thought about it for some months, and then uh, was reading uh, Romans uh, 10, 9, and 10 and the King James, and it was like the words came right off the page into my heart, and I believed, and was marvelously regenerated at uh, the age of almost 13. Brilliant. Yeah. And have you always felt called to ministry, to word ministry, pastoral Well, ministry? very interestingly, because I had no father, and I'd begun to attend church, I identified with the young pastor, who was likewise a World War II vet, right. and a manly, godly man, and so when I came to Christ, I felt immediately called to be a minister. Now, I think it was God's call, but I think he used all, in his sovereignty, he used all of these things to point me that way. So I, I've been, really, it's been my direction since I was just entered my teenage years. Wow. When did you yep. preach your first sermon? 16 years old. 16. Yep. God has a whale of a plan for your life. A sermon on Jonah and the whale. <laughs> uh, as I say in other places, a sermon of dubious wit and doubtful quality, but the doing of it, the simple doing of it at the age of 16 will have people pat you on the head and say, you're going to be a preacher someday. So How encouraging for you. It was, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let me ask you about um, this marvelous book that's been published in your honor. Yes. Preach the Word. Yes. Um, what's it called? Uh, Essays on Expository Preaching yes. in honor of our Kent Hughes. It's a marvelous sort of list of the great and the good from evangelicalism. If I just read out for, for those who've not seen the book... Some of the chapters are by David Jackman, Wayne Grudem, John MacArthur, Wallace Benn, Jim Packer, Don Carson, both Philip and Peter Jensen. Yes, how have you coaxed the, How were these people coaxed out uh, of uh, their, their studies to write something in your honor? Well, I have to say, uh, the Festrif was a total surprise to me. Really? I, di I didn't know it was in the works, so I didn't give any direction to those things. But uh, one of my colleagues that uh, worked with and for me at College Church in Wheaton, mm -hmm. Uh, got the idea, contacted Lee Riken, who's a professor of mm -hmm. English and one of the elders of the church, and they together 
uh, ransacked uh, who they knew Kent Hughes' friends were <laughs> and uh, came up with this marvelous list. I, I, I'm, it's so humbling to have essays by those, by those men of such quality. Oh, yeah, they're brilliant. They yeah. really are fine essays. I devoured, I mean, David Jackman gave me a copy of this book a few months ago and I just devoured it yeah. um, in a couple of days because it's so interesting um, and, you know, such high quality of the articles. Um, all of them, every single one. Every so, one, yes. Um, did you enjoy reading any particular one of those well, chapters? Well, I, I, having, having all my friends, I'm not going to say which <laughs> one, but there are several in there which I think are seminal in their thought. Mm. Really interesting articles. Mm. Um, you've given me new insights into the craft of expository preaching. I, I, I've benefited from the book. Mm. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So you're still learning even after you've been doing this for Absolutely. many, many years. Absolutely. Mine is earmarked and underlined <laughs> and notes. And what is so good about expository preaching then? Well, a great thing about expository preaching is, is that week after week, a faithful expositor engages in raw uh, confrontation with the text. So he reads the text. He may not understand it at first, but... His job is to understand the text in its context, understand the lexical significance of the words, not mm. necessarily overdo it, but to know the words, know the grammar, know how it fits into all of Scripture, apply it to his own life first, mm. which is a sanctifying experience, yeah. and then have the great privilege of delivering, in as much as he's been true to the word in its context, God's word, so that, in a sense... If any man preaches, let him preach as it were the very oracles of God. That is just a huge privilege. Mm. Um, it, it's a lifelong sanctifying process for the preacher to be serious about it. Um, one of the verses I'm going to be thinking about this week is uh, give close attention to your life and your doctrine that you will save both yourself and your hearers. 1 Timothy 4. Yeah. And those, it's the two things together. Close attention to your life is your godliness. Mm -hmm. Your doctrine is your teaching, which mutually inform each other or uh, energize each other. There's an exchange mm -hmm. between these things. And if that happens, then, and this is just a, kind of a funny conceit, but you get saved every week. <laughs> uh, 52 times or 42 times a year mm -hmm. so that I've been saved a thousand times at least. And your hearers. Hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> right. And hopefully my hearers. Why is expository preaching a better way of doing that than any other kind of preaching? Why is topical preaching not so helpful? For yeah, I, um, there are times to do topical exposition, right. topical textual exposition on a certain subject where mm -hmm. you uh, uh, take a text and open it that informs the subject. But uh, the problem with topical preaching is that it, it can be an imposition instead of an exposition wherein mm. the preacher imports his theologies, his structures to these things, assembles them together selectively to say what he wants to say. Mm. Whereas if you're doing expository preaching, then you've got to get the big idea, the theme of the text, and then you want if you're if you're doing it in its context, then you want the symmetries of the text to inform your structure. Now, I'm not talking about a wooden structure, because you could preach a text in reverse. You could preach a 
chiastic text inside out mm. going each way, but the symmetries of the text inform your preaching. Mm. And, uh, and the purpose of the text, the reason it was written in this particular way, in this particular place in a book, yeah. that can inform the way that, or the purpose for which you preach it? Absolutely. Uh, why did Paul say to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness? Why did he say that? Mm. Well, what is it in the larger context of Timothy? Why is godliness important? Well, I think you can tie it to the evangelization of the world. Mm. There's, there's big fish to cut. In this matter of personal godliness, yeah. when you say both yourself and your hearers, it's your, your, your people that hear you teaching, and then I think in the wider uh, context and circle of the world, because in Timothy it says God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So it's, yeah. it's uh, implicitly evangelistic. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Where am I going to hear this kind of preaching? And obviously they do it at. Uh, at Wheaton College Church, and they do it here at St. Helens Bishop's Gate, where yeah, I work as well. Yeah. Are those the only two churches in the entire oh, world no, doing no. expository preaching, or no. are there others? There are fine, uh, there's fine expositional pulpits uh, around the country, uh, both in North America and here, and, and in certain places across the world. For instance, uh, Ajit Fernando, who mm. is in Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. is just... Uh, a supreme expositor of mm. the word. In fact, he's doing he's done a huge series on Deuteronomy, worked right. systematically through the whole book of Deuteronomy. So wow. um, it's not just a Western invention. Where would I hear it in the States then, for instance? I mean, I know some of the English expository preachers, well, maybe some in Australia, like the Jensen's that I mentioned before. You would hear it in the Jensen's and many of the pulpits in that whole Sydney diocese there. Mm-hmm. But in America, if I'm thinking... When when you think of prominent pulpits, you can name those, but it's happening across the country. But the ones that are, I think, real uh, lamps are the pulpit of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia with Philip Ryken. Mm-hmm. I think Gordon Hugenberger at Park Street Church in Boston yeah. does a good job that way. Um, a, a number of uh, a Presbyterian divines, I think of Brian Chapel mm-hmm. as... Uh, an expositor par excellence, um, and uh, I, John MacArthur uh, is an expositor in a in a deeply theological way. It's uh, mm. it's it's not quite pure exposition because he uh, imports so much theology to it, but it is that mm. serial going through the book exposition. Mm. And he's a master in his own way of that. What about people like, um, we're talking about the Baptists now, the uh, Mark Dever and John Oh, Piper. yeah. Uh, Mark Dever, Alistair Begg, uh-huh. uh, they, they all do great jobs. Mark Driscoll, someone I came across uh, just in the last yeah. year or so, is that exposition? Would you call what he does exposition? I, I would say that, that Dever does, I mean, uh, uh, Driscoll, Driscoll does mm. exposition, but... Um, He's he's a bit idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is his own person Very much, in, yeah. in this. Uh, but yeah, I think the text is king for him, and I think that there is some latitude in the whole expository. They're not cookie cutters, <laughs> but the text is sovereign, and you're preaching the text, and you look to the text, then you're go- going to have. So we're not trying to make clones. Um, we shouldn't all try and preach like John Piper. Absolutely. In fact, if if you have people, if you're producing clones, that's cultic. Right. Huh. Uh, if you're teaching by principle, 
then you're going to have people with the same values, the same commitments, the same work ethic, mm -hmm. uh, the same theological commitments, but it's going to be the truth, exposition through the medium of their God-given personality. And some people are more overt and flamboyant by nature. Other people are quieter. Mm -hmm. But there's room for all of those styles as long as the principle is adhered to. So are the principles of expository preaching biblical themselves? Is it a biblical way of preaching? Is there precedent for this in the Bible? Does it say anywhere that we have to preach this way? Well, um, again, in um, 1 Timothy First Timothy 4, it, it, I, I think it's around 12, 13, 14, right in there, it, mm -hmm. it talks about uh, what happened in the apostolic church. He, uh, Paul instructs Timothy to, um, to read the scripture mm -hmm. and then uh, do his exhortation so that there is, uh, you get the reading of the scripture and then you get uh, paraklesos and didascaleus. Translate for our uh, Greek exhortation, uh, paraklesis, and didascalea's teaching. Mm. That comes out of the reading of the word. And what happened in the apostolic church is they did exactly that. So that, uh, for instance, in at the end of the first century, um, is it Clement? Clement, yeah, uh, Clement. Yeah, Clement uh, says that what happened on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, is that. Uh, the president, they read the scriptures, both the Old Testament and New Testament. And mm -hmm. then the president, that's his word that he uses, then taught on those scriptures as long as time permitted. Mm -hmm. So I think you have the pattern there. And no less than John Stott made the statement that that then means that expository preaching is in the apostolic tradition. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Um, but is... Preaching itself may be passe nowadays. I've heard people say recently mm. that perhaps the sustained monologue from the front yeah. is really a bit old-fashioned in our generation now. Um, great for guys like John Stott, and they built the church mm -hmm. and were great in their time. Mm -hmm. Great for our Kent Hughes, mm -hmm. but maybe in the 21st century we need to change our pattern of yeah. doing Well, that. first of all, I don't saying? know anybody that can preach who says that. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, that, uh, you know... Having said that, uh, if you think that uh, getting together in a group where someone has done some study and you, you interact over it and you share your questions over it and there's some instruction and guidance and we look for the Holy Spirit for some sort of existential leadership and teaching, I think you're, they're really mistaken about that. But I, I, I think that uh, given the apostolic precedent that, that preaching... Uh, to a congregation is is the most effective of instructing God's people. And I, I'll give you several reasons why. Mm -hmm. um, one is, is that if I'm alone, say, and I'm reading the scriptures or I'm singing a hymn, that can be edifying. Mm. The study of the scriptures can be edifying. But... Uh, Martin Luther made a statement about, he said, when I'm alone, he said, there is no fire in me. He said, but when I get with the people of God, there's fire. <laughs> what did he mean? Well, it's this. If, I, if I'm in a, um, a service, various kinds of liturgies, casual or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, if the word of God is read and we give assent to it by saying amen or thanks be to God, 
all that mutual affirmation that this is God's word is, is a wonderful thing. And then to sing hymns. You can sing them with three people or a thousand people or 50 people. And as we sing those things together, we sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We uh, mm-hmm. uh, uplift each other. And then to sit under the reading of the word with the word of God open and we're looking at that, nodding assent, being instructed. There's something wonderful that takes place. And the way I've illustrated is to say, you could go and listen to the, uh, just walk by their building, the London Philharmonia, where they mm-hmm. practice over here. Mm-hmm. You could go in there and sit and listen to a practice by yourself, and that would be a great experience. But to sit with 2,000 people who appreciate that music together intensifies your experience of it. And so the, the, this uh, gathering together, having the Word of God is central to your teaching, where the Word of God is read, and then there is uh, exhortation and teaching, I think is the apostolic pattern. Mm. You would say that, though, because uh, what you've been saying there, it sounds like it's a sort of big church model. This is what people would say. I mean, I, yeah. Uh, play devil's advocate for a moment. Uh, but big churches are really, um, they're, they're also passe now. What we need to do now is have small churches with mm-hmm. small communities, uh, you know, missional gospel communities, mm-hmm. rather than big churches with a, with a single kind of monologue from the front from one person. Are big churches passe as well now? Is there any biblical precedent for a big church? Um, I can't think of a biblical precedent for a big church. I mean, a in that sense. I, I can't think of anything in that sense, but uh, it's it's whether you've got 15 people or 1,500 people. Uh, the principle applies, and I've done it all in all sizes and, and mm. all ways over the years. I I taught uh, high school students and uh, university students for a decade mm. and did it that way. Now I would say that they, very casual. I mean, I was doing this back in the 60s and 70s, wearing a Hawaiian shirt and, uh, <laughs> and bell bottoms and sandals or, you know, the whole, the whole thing, long sideburns. It was a lot more casual, but it was still the same type mm-hmm. of instruction. And, and even if I was sitting on the floor with them, I taught them. Mm-hmm. I taught them from the Word. There were the thousands of people converted in the beginning of Acts. I mean, that's a big church. I, well, I thought Sitting about in, that. In Solomon's yeah. portico, having yeah. Peter teach them the word. And that well, kind of thing. E- exactly. Um, doesn't all because I think some people will privilege the idea of a house church or yeah. something small because it is very different to what we're yeah. used to. Well, the problem is, is and I have, I just really have to say it. Oftentimes, that kind of mentality is really a very insular, insulated us for no more. We're the purified, and we're the mm-hmm. elect. Now, I, mm-hmm. I as a caricature. And certainly they could be otherwise. Mm. But I do know people that result in that kind of thing pr- primarily for those reasons. Yeah. I suppose the opposite side of it is that um, just going into ministry or if you've been in, in ministry just a few years, yeah. there could be a great desire to build a big church and to be a great success in, yeah. in the yeah. eyes of the world and yeah. to have clout and influence. Right. What I say about that? Yeah. What would you say about that? Well, if you if you have a quantified definition of success, mm. where you say success is two hundred or two thousand, or in some churches today twenty thousand, mm. uh, if you have a quantified definition of success, then you're defining your success very much like a businessman or a politician would define his success. It's quantitative. Mm. 
Now I would say, I, I want to be very careful to say that if you have, it tells us at Pentecost that 3,000 people were saved. You just mentioned Pentecost. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an important thing. That's a lot of people. It tells us that Jesus fed 5,000 on one time, 4,000 another time from just mm -hmm. some loaves and fishes. Mm -hmm. But let me say, if at Pentecost 30 people had been saved or three had been saved and the Holy Spirit was in it, it would have been a success, hmm. you see. Hmm. And uh, I, I, so, I, I, so I wouldn't say numbers are not something that we're just agnostic about and don't care about. I, I always uh, paid attention to numbers. But I never define my success hmm. by the numbers of people that attended. And there's, there's a great story that comes out of Moses' life in Numbers 20 when he's back in Rephidim again. And remember he had uh, uh, smitten the rock mm -hmm. 40 years early and water poured out. And now they were back in the same place and the people were really crying for his and Aaron's head. And, and uh, he went in, threw himself before God, and God said, speak to the rock. And he came out, and he was so enraged that he disobeyed God's direct command, and he smote the rock again, twice. twice. Mm -hmm. Now water poured out, and everybody was fed that day, and there was great singing of Moses' success, I'm sure, around the campfires tonight. But it was such a, an affront to God and his holiness that he was forbidden to go in to the promised land because of that. So you can have people singing your accolades. You can have thousands of people saying, isn't it wonderful to worship water from the rock mm. and uh, be mm. a failure in God's eyes because you've got to be faithful to his word. Now, I think someone ought to write a book about liberating ministry <laughs> from the success yeah. syndrome. Yeah. That would be a good title for a book, wouldn't yeah. it? Isn't it that, was that your first book? It was my first book, and, uh, and I never set out to write a book about it. But uh, I'd gone through, just for these reasons, I had uh, planted a church in a sprawling, suburban, growing area of Southern California back in the early 70s. And uh, I'd had 10 years working with students, and uh, so they used me as a church plant pastor, and everyone told me I was going to be just, it was going to outgrow the mother church, and mm. I believed it. And... Uh, we started off with a bang, and then it began to fizzle. And uh, it's not the hardest thing I've gone through in ministry. Many harder things, but it almost made me quit because I felt like I was such a failure. And uh, through a number of things, really, uh, God meeting us and my wife in a, in a wonderful way, we came to the conclusion that we had to define success biblically. And so we began a search for that. And what happened is that uh, uh, I came to the understanding of three principles. Success is faithfulness to God's word. And that numbers passage was very key in my coming to understand that. Mm -hmm. It's required of a servant or a steward they'd be found faithful. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's got to mean faithful to God's word, and it also means faithful in the sense of hard working. Because in Matthew 25, you have the parable of the talents, and you remember mm -hmm. the one who did nothing, he said, you lazy, wicked servant. Mm -hmm. But to the one who invested it, he says, you're a faithful servant. Mm 
So, and then, then I began to see that success is also a foot-washing heart, that, that there's no success apart from that. Our, our, our Lord Jesus in John 13 says, If I, the greater, washed your feet, how much more ought you to wash one another's feet? Mm. So there's really no success apart from a foot-washing heart. I mean, a heart that's full of hubris and self-service can't be successful. Can in the world's eyes. It can in the world's eyes, and indeed yeah. it goes on all the time. And then the other one that I had learned was uh, that it's, it's loving God with all your heart. It's not something new. Mm. I mean, it's in the Shema, it's in the Reproshma with Jesus and John at the end mm -hmm. of John 21. But the real truth is, you can preach to thousands of people and not love God. Yeah. Uh, you can write a book encouraging people to love God and not love God. I mean, he knows. And so I began to get those things straight and um, had an occasion to share it with some of my seminary uh, classmates and just had a really wonderful time. And the upshot of that was is some years later, when I knew I couldn't get an exposition ready for Sunday night, I asked Barbara to share that with me. And uh, I shared it with the congregation. I had just a tremendous response hmm. about this whole matter of biblical success. Hmm. And I had an editor come and grab me by the arm from Christian Bookhouse and say, this has to be a book. Uh, don't uh, don't uh, sign a contract with anyone else. And my wife said, how can it be a book? <laughs> you just heard everything in 45 minutes. And uh, this long time ago, we, uh, we signed a contract. I got a couple of thousand dollars. I spent it and I had to write the book. And so <laughs> we had a sabbatical, and I, I, it was really God's direction. I began to flesh that whole thing out as to what biblical success is. Yeah. So that success is uh, faithfulness, and success is serving, and success is loving God, and success is um, believing prayer. God. Excuse me? Mm, it's prayer and holiness. Yeah, like prayer that. and Numbers. holiness and, and all these things. And you put them together in bouquet. Mm. It is, uh, it, it's not anything new, but it is very, very intense and very liberating. Mm. It's a great liberation for pastors, actually. Everyone I know who's read that book has found it incredibly helpful uh, in ministry. You can easily get stuck into a rut thinking that you're not going anywhere because right. you haven't got thousands of people in your church and you know, people aren't yeah. downloading your sermons every week or something like that. Right. To read your book was really helpful. Absolutely. And... Uh, and the real truth is, Lee's, you don't know whether I'm a success or not, mm. hmm. do you? I don't know your heart. That's right. God does. Mm. Very, very important. And pleasing Him should be our main yeah. aim in life, really. Yeah. Well, you've written lots of very helpful books yeah. um, to help the rest of us be successful in God's eyes. So that yeah. one about liberating ministry from the success syndrome is great. Lots of your sermons have been written up as, as books in the Preach the Word series. Yes, yeah. They're terrifically helpful to see what expository preaching should look like. Yeah. And they're not, we can't copy them because everyone will know. We've stolen your illustrations and your stories. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> that's great. There's another book over here, which over here yeah. is very, very popular. And many people who listen to this, uh, this chat will probably know you from Disciplines of a Godly Man. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you're a legalist, basically, is, is what people will say. You're a legalist. You believe in discipline. Uh, for godliness, there's nothing about grace in your ministry. What, what would you say? Well, if, said if, that? if I'm a legalist, the Apostle Paul was a legalist. <laughs> and uh, it's the interesting thing is that when you say discipline, 
the way it transmutes into many evangelical Christians' minds is legalism. Mm. Discipline, legalism, both uh, kind of uh, uh, grim, uh, furrowed-browed, sweaty, unhappy things. Mm -hmm. But uh, the real truth is, is that the Apostle Paul, who fought the Judaizers, that is the legalizers, bare knuckles all the way across Asia. He hated legalism with a passion. Just read the book of Galatians. It says in 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So Paul enjoins discipline upon us. Now the interesting thing is, is that the context is, it, it tells us, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, but it tells us in the preceding chapter, at the end of the chapter, that the mystery of godliness is Christ. So it's not, it, it, it's Christ in you. Now the interesting thing is, is when Christ is in you and you're a recipient of grace, grace uh, changes the way you approach life. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Mm-hmm. And then, then he goes on to say, and by God's grace, I worked more Harder than, than all any of them. the rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there is sweat in grace, and there's perspiration in grace. No, no manliness, uh, no maturity, no sweat, no sainthood. Uh, you know, we got to be men yeah. and women. Uh, uh, and so the disciplines are, are put in that gracious context. Mm. Um, it's a book about grace. Mm. It's about having received the grace of God. And what to do with it. And what to do with it, yeah. Yeah. Well, those are some of the biggest things I wanted to, to ask you about. If we could just throw you some uh, some quickies now. Yeah. Give me give me one or two sentences on all of these things. If you just to, to hear what Kent Hughes thinks on X, Y, and Z. Well, I would say this: if you're in the ministry, I, you need to take the ministry very seriously, uh-huh. but don't take yourself too seriously. Uh-huh. That you are expendable. And sometimes I think the, the pastor with the call, it gets so intense that he feels like he's got to be ubiquitous. He's got to be everywhere and he's got to be counseling everybody and running every meeting and uh, orchestrating this and that as if the Holy Spirit can't work if his fingerprints aren't all over it. And so I, I think that, uh, yeah, serious about your preaching and serious about your counseling and serious about your leadership, but learn to let the bowstring uh, loose the bowstring some, you know. Mm-hmm. Enjoy a good meal. Take your holidays. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your children. Uh, I mean, God, God can use the jackass. <laughs> it's very, very clear. So he can even use me. That probably that's that's, encouraging. that's exactly it. It's great that you're looking straight at me as you say that. Thank you. <laughs> what do you think about penal substitutionary atonement, Kent? What do I think about penal substitutionary atonement? I think it's what the Scripture teaches mm-hmm. explicitly. And implicitly, and uh, that if you if you do away with uh, penal substitutionary atonement, if I mean if you minimize penal substitutionary atonement, if you see this uh, the atonement as a model, or you see it uh, as a demonstration that Christ is victorious, um, that you are just diminishing a great doctrine which is so necessary. If Christ died to pay the punishment for everyone's sins, then how come everyone's not in heaven? Well, 
That's a good question, and the good question, there are people on both sides of that issue that can answer the question. Mm-hmm. And one is, is that there are people that say that, uh, yeah, it was sufficient for all and efficient for few. There's some people say that. Mm-hmm. Other people see that, that uh, we're talking about the elect. And so, mm-hmm. And you're not going to tell me what you, what you think. No, I think, I think that he died for the elect. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, what about... Here's some other issues. The ESV study Bible. Yeah. Should I get a study Bible or is that adding to scripture to have a study Bible? Well, uh, I think a study Bible can be very helpful. I think you should have two Bibles. You should have one that has um, minimum notes and cross-references and then you ought to have another one that you can dip into. And I think that all, it's, it's a qualitative question. How good is the study Bible? Have you read the ESV one? Have you seen? I actually history? have seen drafts. I've seen a mm-hmm. list of all the contributors to it. It's almost like the list of contributors to your um, fest trip. Isn't yeah. it, really? It's <laughs> I mean, great it's, and the good. It is a great uh, list. You can go online mm-hmm. uh, and uh, check it out, and you can see who's done what on every book. And I know this that uh, that Jim Packer is the you know the general editor of the whole the whole thing, the theological mm-hmm. editor, and that each all the work on all those books have gone basically through sixteen different screenings. Wow! Moving up from right. you'll have your New Testament editor, and then he has a specialist mm-hmm. uh, uh, working in the area on a, on a certain book, like say Scott Hafeman on Second Corinthians or mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that, and then that's read by. Uh, that editor, and then it's read by a copy editor, and then it's read by uh, Wayne Grudem, and then it's read by uh, Jim Packer, and then it's read by the editor of Crossway Books. They, they actually go through 16 different wow. screenings for quality. They've tried to make it uh, uh, orthodox, classic, evangelical. I look forward to getting my copy in the, uh, in the autumn when it yeah. comes out here. Yeah. What do you think about homeschooling? That's a hot issue in some parts of uh, evangelicalism at the moment. Well, um, people may not like to hear this. Uh, I think I think that that uh, there are many times when you should do homeschooling, mm-hmm. but I think it's a highly individual thing. Right. Um, it depends on the child. Mm-hmm. It depends on the context. Now, if you're in the heart of a, a city where the schools are what we call a say just bombed out, no discipline, no teaching. Mm. You don't have the resources to send them to um, what we call a private school in state or a public mm-hmm. school here mm-hmm. in Britain. You don't have those kind of resources. Then I think homeschooling is 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 important. And so, with some of my grandchildren, some have been homeschooled and some have gone to public school. Mm. But I think as a principle to say. Under any circumstances, we're going to homeschool our children. Is is foregoing a number of things, a great evangelistic opportunity mm-hmm. of having your children in public schools and in the neighborhood where you get to know people who can you can get to know because you want to share Christ with them, and teaching your children to be a light in a dark world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I'm not for. Um, because our culture is secular, just saying homeschooling is the way to go. I think it's it, okay. it's case by case. Right. 
That's really helpful. Thank yeah. you. Um, what do yeah. you think about? Give me give me one sentence on infant baptism. On infant baptism. Um, okay, um, I had a, a, a woman that uh, uh, came to my church, and I, I'll tell you a little bit about my church situation. And, and she gave me a tract on infant baptism. I opened it, and there was nothing on the. In- so it said what the Bible says about infant baptism. <laughs> there was nothing on the inside. <laughs> And uh, I have gone back and forth on this because uh, I'm reformed in my theology, mm-hmm. and uh, I have I have not been able to um, I have not been able to move away from a baptistic position mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I'll tell you what I do think. I do think that there is, with any any believers, whether they are Baptists or Pado Baptists, that if you if you um, baptize your child and you seriously do that and put yourself under the discipline of the church and the hearing of the word and you pray for your children and you set a godly example, mm-hmm. that children is in if not in a covenantal in a quasi covenantal. Position, but I also think that in a Baptist church, if you did the same thing without the water, that in a sense, it is quasi-covenantal too. Mm-hmm. I mean, a child is very much in a position of having been a circumcised child within old Israel. Interesting. But we'll move on to another one quickly because our yeah. time is running short. Um, uh, are you a pre-millennialist, an amillennialist, a post-millennialist, or a pan-millennialist? Well. My son is an amillennialist, and I'm a premillennialist. I'm not a dispensationalist. It would be more more like covenant premillennialism. It's a classic yeah. premillennialist. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Is that still quite large? Quite, quite a large constituency in the Reformed evangelical world in the states. It is. Uh, for instance, um, if you think of, and I'll just say the word. You say Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Well, Robert Rayburn, the founder of Covenant Seminary, and Francis mm-hmm. Schaefer, who was his mm-hmm. best friend, were both premillennial. Mm-hmm. I would probably say the bulk of the students at Covenant are amillennial, mm-hmm. so they kind of coexist together. But you know that uh, if if you if you say as a as a uh, well a dispensationalist would say that there's a radical disjunction between Israel and the Church, mm-hmm. uh, a um, millennials will say, no, they're one and the same. There's a radical continuity between the two. But if you read those things and see, yes, there is there is a continuity, but there are some distinctions, then you're kind of in the uh, covenant premillennial, okay. historic premillennial camp. Uh, I've got one more short one. What about, uh, we've got a big problem over here um, and in the Anglican communion generally with uh, homosexuality and with women bishops. Yeah. Are those issues in the states? Obviously, women bishops are because the head of the Episcopal Church is a woman archbishop. Right, but um, right. is women elders an issue in other churches, in Presbyterians or Baptist churches? Uh, it is. Uh, it's a growing issue, and it's it's a lot of people just want to be agnostic about it. I remember talking with a, a famous, unnamed Reformed theologian, and as actually sitting at table with him, John Piper, at John Piper's home in Minneapolis, and John said. He, uh, the man's name, he said, uh, so-and-so, mm-hmm. he said, uh, he said, given what the scripture teaches, he said, how can you 
except you know women elders and preachers and he looked at both of us and said 200 years of missionary history that was his answer so theology was out the window and the appeal to um, history was in it trumped it it was absolutely amazing to both of us as we heard that and I I have to say that uh, if you if you take first Timothy 2 and you interpret it in its context and you allow the words to say what they say mm -hmm. and you go back to Genesis that Paul refers to there is no way mm -hmm. that you can possibly allow women to have an authoritative teaching function over the men of the church I'm not talking about on occasion some instruction but I'm talking an elder-like bishop-like function mm -hmm. or a preacher function within the church you can't have it yeah. And the, the context moves right right from 1 Timothy 2 to 1 Timothy 3, which, which gives instruction for, God, for an elder. Yeah, godly for an elders. I yeah. mean, it's, it is... You, and so if you will rationalize that away by some sort of cultural manipulation or a reconstruction of first century culture, mm -hmm. which is really a lot of bad... Uh, restructuring's been done mm. if you can do it with that then you can do it with the whole matter of, of gender and homosexuality and so yeah. I think there's a hermeneutical connection between the two mm, thank and, you. that's extremely and, useful and you see that borne out yeah well I remember people saying in 1992-93 when women priests were first allowed in the Church of yeah. England yeah. some people said well using that hermeneutic that way of interpreting 1 Timothy 2 we'll be having gay priests Right. And people said, oh, no, of course we won't. No, yeah. no, of course it doesn't mean that. Yeah. But, of course, here we are 15, 20 years well, later. Well, what happened just this exactly last week or last two weeks here in London? Exactly, exactly. Um, tell me what three books ought every single Christian in the world to read. Well, I would, close with this. I would say Jim Packer's... Um, Knowing God. Knowing God. Marvelous. That is a classic book. Yeah. And I believe even John Stott said that that is the book, that is the one book he thinks will transcend this age going uh, you know into centuries beyond I really do think that that is a wonderful book um, then it gets it I mean from there obviously would, you then go to a liberating ministry yeah, success no, by Ken Hughes I would say I would say for men in ministry I think uh, Jonathan Edwards on the religious affections really okay to really read that and study it and and go where Edwards goes with that is you just very, spent very, too much time with John Piper that's why you're going for a Jonathan Edwards book uh, not really but here's here's the deal is that when Edwards says affections he doesn't mean a mild feeling he means everything that makes you <clears throat> makes you in your heart, your loves, your hatreds, your zeals, your passions, mm -hmm. your likes, your dislikes, what gives you joy, what makes all these things. And and uh, and and he talks about how that a, a truly regenerate heart, the religious affections are changed. Mm -hmm. And um, that's number two. You've got to give me number three, and then I'll let you go. Okay. <laughs> Well, for me, I'm just going to give you what happened for me because it's, I'm sure, not the greatest book out there. But for me, it was uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' <clears throat> Sermon on the Mount. Right. I yeah. bought it years ago in the, in the early 70s. I read that through. I got a two-volume Erdman's hardback set of that. 
and read it through, and it was so enlightening and so theologically helpful to me. And I, I wrote Lloyd-Jones uh, from California back in the early 70s. Really? I got a, got a card back from him several months later saying thank you for the encouragement. And uh, I say Lloyd-Jones Exposition, the Sermon on the Mount. That's a great book. It's one of the first Christian books I read as well. Is that actually. right? Yeah, I met Lloyd Jones's dentist, and he recommended it to me, so I thought I'd read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It just opened the Beatitudes to me and the whole Sermon on the Mount in a way that I it just fantastic, mind blowing. Yeah. Ken, thanks so much for agreeing to come and talk to us, and uh, I'm sure this will be of uh, great interest to many on the uh, on the internet on the theologian. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>